Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. How are you doing today, Mark? Good, Kim. Always so, great to see you and talk wine. Yeah. Right? So let me ask you a question. Your favorite wines, where do they come from, generally? Oh, I learned long ago not to say my favorite, but usually warmer climate, warmer regions. So you California, like, Australia, warmer. Warmer. So you like grapes that come from warmer places. I tend to be a little bit more the opposite. I tend to like wines that come from areas that are a little bit cooler. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. There was a fantastic article in one of our favorite favorite wine websites, Wine Folly, always has some excellent graphics and some really good stuff to talk about. And it was all about cool climate areas and the grapes and the wines that they produce. Yes, always interesting. I feel maybe the average wine drinker doesn't think of the cool versus the warm climate. Mm -hmm. But can you give examples to our listeners, cool climate regions, cool climate grapes to kind of build on the back? And why is it important? So the climate of the growing area impacts the final flavor of the wine because it all has to do with how ripe do, do those grapes get and how is the flavor development in the fruit. So if you have grapes from a cooler climate, they're going to develop in a different way than if you have grapes from a warmer climate. And warmer, not only meaning temperature, but also a lot of sunshine days, and then the differences between the heat in the morning and the heat at night, and what happens in all four seasons. So a cool climate generally will have grapes that have lower alcohol, higher acidity, and more of like a citrusy character, as opposed to warmer climates, which will be riper. You might get more notes of tropical fruit, of stone fruits like peaches and nectarines. And this is just talking about the whites, but there are all sorts of charts that you can see that will show you the flavor profiles of cooler climate grapes versus warmer climate grapes. And typically the the color is a lot lighter. You talked about lower alcohol because in the climate, the grapes can't fully develop like in a warmer climate. Mm -hmm. So it leads to lighter colored wines. leads to lower alcohol wines. I tend to find that it's not as much fruit, obviously, because in lower alcohol, lower fruit, a little bit crisper. Right. Absolutely. The flavors in the grapes don't seem to have as much chance to develop if they have either a shorter growing season or a cooler growing season. So you do get much more of a fruity characteristic if you have a warmer growing climate grape because they have not only longer time on the vine, but just phenolically, there's a lot more chemically going on in that fruit that will then translate into the wine into being a richer kind of jammier sometimes characteristic or just being a more powerfully fruity fruity wine. The best comparison I like to do with this, Kim, is talking about Pinot Grigio, tasting Pinot Grigio from Northern Italy versus California Pinot Grigio. Yeah, this is actually totally a really styles. great experiment. If you taste Pinot Gris from someplace a little warmer like California, or if then if you taste one from someplace a little bit cooler. Sauvignon Blanc, I feel, works this way too. Yeah, and same grape in, in like Alto Adige, they grow Pinot Grigio and it's very light, almost a clear color, a little bit more acidic 
acidity and like you said, stone fruit versus like maybe a tropical fruit from California. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to understand that each grape variety really has its own unique characteristics and some just prefer cooler climate while others prefer warmer climate. You might have something like Cabernet Sauvignon that really does need more heat and more sunshine and more growing days in order to get to its full ripeness. Whereas something else like Pinot Noir prefers it to be a little bit cooler. So if you plant the same vine, if you plant a Cabernet vine and a Pinot Noir vine right next to each other in two different areas, one cooler and one warmer, you are going to get very different wines out of the two of those. And you might prefer the Cabernet from one place, but the Pinot from the other place, because those grape varieties just have their own unique set of climatic conditions that that they prefer. I love Pinot Noir from cool climate regions, that very light color, Germany, Northern Italy. Are you a big fan of that style, I prefer the the cooler climates. I I just don't feel like Pinot really does really well in really hot places. That's why you're going to see very, very little Pinot Noir from, say, Australia, or you're going to see it from the cooler areas of California, like Sonoma. You're not going to see Pinot Noir from Paso Robles. You're not going to see Pinot Noir from Lodi. And I feel like Riesling is the same way. Warm climate Riesling, I think, is fat and flabby and really not very interesting. But cooler climate Riesling is totally where it's at for me. The other day, I just tried a Pinot Noir from a Jura region. I did too. Did you? Yes. I really I, like those. I thought that was very unique and cool climate. I, I would consider Jura mm-hmm. very cool. Oh, I would too. Right? Jura is a region in France that not too many people know about. And it's on the border with Austria, I yes. believe. Yep. And so it has much more of the, I would say, the Germanic personality because it's all the way over on the eastern border of France and it's up it's up in the mountains and you get much cooler growing growing conditions. It's much more like a, a German Spatburgunder. So getting back to the general cool climate, recognizing wines, it is one of the things that super tasters just by looking at, they have to identify a wine if it's a hot climate or a cool climate. That's how they get easily. It's a it's an ID basically for the region, mm-hmm. right? They look in the, for these characteristics and they shine out, right? The the color. Right. The... Yeah. The color is a big indicator. Usually a cooler climate, red or white, will be lighter in color. It'll be lighter in body. I know we talk about the texture of the wine a lot. So when you swirl it around your glass, it's not going to cling to the sides as much. It's not going to seem as heavier. You're not generally going to be able to see through it as well as you could from someplace that's a little bit warmer. Have you ever seen a retailer or a restaurant separate their list by climate? Not by climate. I've seen them separate by by weight. So you might have light whites and then medium-bodied whites and then full-bodied whites and then light-bodied reds, etc. from that. But I, I haven't seen them as far as climate. So if you are following along in this conversation and you're interested in trying some of these wines from either cooler climate or warmer climate, I would say that be on the lookout for whites and reds from Germany, from Oregon, from New Zealand, from the Loire Valley in France. And that will give you a good indication of what both whites and reds in a whole bunch of different grape varieties will taste like from from cooler growing regions. You know, you're going to find lower alcohol, higher acid, more kind of savory, maybe herbal, lightly fruity flavors, and a whole lot less jammy. New Zealand thing was interesting, thinking it's totally cool climate. I mean, it's cool nights, but yeah, New Zealand day, is so. New Zealand is kind of right in the middle there because you do get some that are a little bit fruitier, but, but th- I think because they have that real zippy, zesty 
grapefruity, citrusy kind of notes to them that, that people really are still considering those in the cool climate camp. And I guess I could relate to Pinot Noir from that region is that style, it's that lighter color. Yeah, right? I, I totally do. Like it's more, it's more French, it's less California. And as we see climate change and temperatures changing and areas of grape growing and winemaking start to shift depending on if an area is getting too warm, we are going to see more areas that even 20 years ago were unsuitable to grapevines are now starting to produce wine. So be on the lookout for wines from southern England. A lot of places in Canada are producing some great wines. And then we have countries that the Netherlands and Belgium and Poland and states like Michigan and other northern states that are starting to have a wine economies and start to be producing some good stuff. So keep a lookout for those areas that are sort of on the fringes. And if you like this style of wine, definitely go search them out. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Now we're going to talk about an article that was in Wine Enthusiast magazine about wine on tap or keg wine. Kim, any experience with wine in a keg? No, but I think it's a, a really brilliant idea. I get quite questions an awful lot about alternative packaging. I got one just last week about what's up with wine in cans and wines in boxes. And, you know, we talk about different kinds of, of enclosures and, and stuff like that all the time. But this whole concept of wine on tap, just like you have beer in a keg, uh, you would have wine in a keg at a restaurant and serving your buy the glass program using wines on tap instead of having to open up a bottle every time somebody wants a, a glass of wine, I think is positively brilliant. I, the concept of bulk, you know, major bulk wine, like I know sake used to come in a huge like ball or a box, but this is talking wine that's in, in some sort of stainless steel keg. Right. So this is something that was developed fairly recently. It There's a little bit of history behind having wine in this sort of a distribution con container, but it was, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, it was more for like really cheap house wine, like real bulk stuff for restaurants to just have a by the glass or like a carafe of wine on a table. It seems that these days there is better sourcing and that the wines that are being put into these kind of containers are actually uh, much better. When you think about it, it's just a big can, right? It's a big it, it can. It keeps it very fresh. And when winemakers already are using a lot of stainless steel to make their wines in, this seems to be a development that w was only a matter of time before it would happen. Not only are you able to retain the freshness of the wine by keeping it in a sealed container, but it's also very eco-friendly. You're not having the weight of the glass. You're not having to recycle or throw away that glass bottle once it's opened up and done with. Transportation is a lot less expensive when you don't have the weight of the bottles. And there's just all these different points that seem to make it to, you know, if, if your restaurant can sustain having all of the equipment behind the bar to do a buy the glass program through these kegs, I think it makes a whole lot of sense. I think the key thing you, you said a few times now, Kim, is buy the glass. If, if you go to a restaurant, it's scary not knowing when you order buy the glass, how long it's been opened. But if you see a tap handle there, it says California Pinot Noir, it's on tap. 
tap, you know it should be fresh. I mean, it lasts, what, three weeks or something after it's tapped. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea that it's fresh by the glass pours. Right. And I think for the kinds of wines that people are looking for by the glass, this sort of fits because you're not going to be putting older Cabernets or older Burgundies. You know, this, this is not for like an aged wine program. This is more for wines that are youthful, that are meant for early drinking, that are styles that are very well matched with different kinds of foods. I can definitely see gastropubs that have a cool revolving menu and a lot of beers on taps and are looking for something interesting to do with their wine program that is somewhat similar, that this would be something that would pair and match really well with, with those kind of programs. So they're not ageable wines, but that also means they're using less sulfur in the keg to preserve it because it's fresh. Right. That's a good, that's a good point to mention is because there's no oxygen getting in there. You really have a, a much fresher product and you don't need quite as much of the sulfur preservative. I have seen different styles of these kegs where one of them was almost a collapsible aluminum bag and you needed a special tap system to use it. That was around quite frequently. And I know a few years ago, there was a high end producer of Pinot Noir who had like a hundred liter package of some sort that you would put in. I think they made like a fake wine barrel, but it was a bag inside it. That's more of like a bag in a box. That's more of like a boxed wine. But um, big volume that lasted right. a long time for by-the-glass pours. Right. And just recently, I saw an article. Now, when you go into a bar or restaurant, you see those nice beer handles that ID which beer you're pouring. I just recently saw an article that said there's a law in Massachusetts that if you have wine on tap, you have to label that handle. Well, that it, makes so sense. So you have to know what it is. So I, I guess there were some people, they were putting whatever, they were swapping it out so they didn't have a handle hmm. and they had to actually stop serving it until they had a, a label on the hand. Well, it's sort of like truth in advertising, right? I mean, people at a bar they will not be really necessarily asking for a list. But if you see all those handles, you're going to buy your pint based on what you see in front of you. So I can definitely see that that would need to be true for wine as well. If people want to know what they're buying. So now, Kim, you're having a a, a party. Are you getting a keg of beer and a a keg of wine? Maybe. Less to open, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm big on variety, though. So I kind of like a bottle of this and a bottle of this and a bottle of this. But I can see what this would have a place. A keg of wine. A keg of wine. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find out more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And for more information about Mark, please go to franklinliquors.com. So our regular listeners will know that we talk an awful lot about food and wine together. Classic pairings versus unusual pairings. It's a lot of questions that we get in our classes. But back to an old favorite website of ours, Wine Folly. They had a great article about really bad food and wine pairings. So I thought that this was really fun and a topic that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, I always like talking food and wine with you, Kim, because we clash a lot. And you're the foodie, so I love learning what your thoughts are on this stuff. But what was the top thing you took from it, Kim? Um. It, it comes down to the the idea of balance and we're always talking about balance and how foods and wines and things go together and I thought that there were some interesting topics in here because these were our food and wine mistakes that I have also made in a couple of instances so I've got personal experience that yes 
yes, these pairings are really terrible. And the very first one that they mentioned was heavy red wines with something fishy. So a couple of examples, they, t- they said um, Cabernet and Caviar, terrible together. Chianti and like a tuna fish sandwich are <laughs> terrible together. And that's totally true from my experience. Big tannic reds make these kinds of fish dishes taste really briny and really metallic. So it's like, don't have cab and caviar. Don't have a big red wine with uh, mussels or oysters or anything like that. It's just, it's just not good. Let's talk about the Chianti and tuna. Now, I'm a big tuna fish fan, and we were talking, why did they say this? I was thinking Chianti is acidic, so maybe the acidity. Are they talking tuna fish, so like a I think they're talking like fish, a tuna fish tuna sandwich. Steak. They said tuna salad. Okay. So, so like with mayonnaise level. and stuff like that. Yeah. See, I'm more the tuna salad. You're more the tuna steak. See, like a, right, like <laughs> a tuna steak, a nice rare tuna steak. Maybe it's got like peppercorns on there and it's all crusted and seared and stuff. That I can see maybe not being so bad with Chianti. But if they're talking about like a tuna fish sandwich. So, yeah. and you personally tried this and oh. it's not the acidity that no, got to you. there's something, it like brings out the incredible fishiness. Also, I don't think that high acid wines and things like mayonnaise go great together either. Well, now let's talk about the heavy reds with fish. Now, now is this also for fried fish? Would you say stay away from yeah, heavy reds? Yeah, I wouldn't do reds and fried fish either. That being said, I do like certain red wines with certain fish. So I'll drink Pinot Noir with tuna sashimi or with salmon as part of a sushi meal. I find that Pinot Noir and lighter reds actually go really, really nicely with those things. But here I think we're talking about the added level of acid and the added level of tannins, that it's those things that don't really go well together. Yeah, I could see heavy when you're talking the tannic wines would not work. But I'm the lower, like uh, maybe, a gamay or a mm-hmm. boj- they, they would probably work with a fish. Yeah, you could a get little fruitier, a little lighter. Totally, I think that those things could work. Because you hear pinot noir with fish quite often, yep. which is which is light body, light tannins. Yep. I, th- I think with one of the takeaways here for this one is also shellfish, shellfish and red wines. For the same reason, I get that real fishy, metallic, really just not a pleasant sensation. So I wouldn't, I really wouldn't ever put a heavy red with shellfish. Have you ever tried caviar? Oh yeah. Yeah. What have What did you, have you had wine with caviar? Champagne. Champagne, sure, right? um, yeah, white. It's more of a white wine yeah. kind of thing. You need the the refreshing feeling of the white wines to kind of get that that fishiness out of there. It's like one of those things you red wine for any of these it wouldn't even cross my mind. No, me neither. You know, so yeah. What about the short ribs with Moscato? This kind of being the opposite. So this one you have the food being the heavy element here and overwhelming a very delicate light wine. So this one isn't so much that it's a bad pairing in that the flavor of the wine is good, the flavor of the food is good. You put them together and it's just terrible in your mouth. This is more that it's a bad match because the food is so heavy that it's going to overwhelm the flavor of the wine. See, I was thinking when you said it's not bad, but I was thinking this would work if you had short ribs that have a sweet or sour sauce. Or a spicy sauce. Yeah. Like if you've so got a little work. bit of a sweet Moscato and you have it with something a little spicy, I see that that would be terrible, yeah, honestly. Yeah, so to me, this is one that probably wasn't really a worse food and wine. I think it's, it's more you that you experiment. wouldn't be able to taste the wine all that much. Yeah. Like you want a wine that has a little bit more something going on so that you can actually taste it. Whereas this is just going to come across as, I don't know, like sugar water. I would like to try it. I think this is should. one on the list that okay. I would love to try. I think we need to make a list. Not the All tuna. the foods that we're going to go try with wines. So next, chocolate, cake, and red wine. This is like, you always hear chocolate and red wine, chocolate and Cabernet. 
I really don't like chocolate and, and red wine. I know a lot of people really love the combination, but some, a sweet cake and a dry red wine doesn't really work for me. But I think you're the opposite. No, I there are some red wines, Cabernets, that I get chocolate notes that I would say, uh-huh. yeah, definitely I would pair this. But they, they, you know, traditionally it's if it's a sweet cake, you wouldn't want to put a dry wine. Yeah. And again, the, the sweetness of the cake is going to make the wine taste so dry and taste so just almost chalky in your mouth that it that's what makes it not a good pairing. That's more the dryness and the sweetness. And we our general rule of thumb is if you are going to pair food that is sweet with wine, you also have to have the wine be sweet so that it doesn't make the wine taste sour or too thin or too tannic like that. How about Chardonnay with ice cream? I might want to give this one a try, actually. And kind of going back to what, what you like about food and wine pairings, where you say matching up the flavors. So if you have a Chardonnay that's big and buttery and creamy and has like maybe tropical fruit notes, I almost feel like maybe a vanilla ice cream could could go with that. Yeah, I, I think I kind of want to give it a try. They didn't really, did they mention any ice cream flavors? We're just throwing no. ones out there, but. No, I think they just said vanilla. But I mean, I, strawberry I would be really ice cream curious. with you know, something that's vanilla plays on the Chardonnay. Yeah. Or you can get an unoaked Chardonnay that would go with a lot of the nice fruit wines. See, I don't know that know? I would do unoaked Chardonnay. I feel like that would be too high in acid. Really? Yeah. I would, I would want something. To get apple to go with, say, mm. a strawberry or a raspberry or okay. a black cherry type of thing. Play okay. on the fruit type with of a thing. Fruit, yeah. With a fruit wine, a fruit, a fruity ice cream. But I think it works. I think it works based on, I mean, we always talk about trying to do an ice cream and wine pair. We have to have to work on that. <laughs> we'll see how it goes and how it feels in real life. So the next one they talked about was Syrah with sweet and sours. I don't even know where to start with this one. I think this kind of goes back to the the wine just being overwhelming. But this might be overwhelming from both a food standpoint and from the wine standpoint. Yeah, I don't. I, I have no idea what would happen if you were to do this food combination. Well, there's so many different styles of Shiraz that, I mean, if it's that spicy style, might work. A little mm. pepper. I can see this just bomb. being like no. too much from everywhere. Yeah. You know, too much to the wine, too much to the food, too much sweetness, too much sourness, too much spicy, like just everything together. But too yeah. heavy, too heavy too in heavy. general. Yep, I, I can see some where if you have like a sweet and sour chicken, you know I me, mean? I'm plain, so I'm talking just sweet and sour <laughs> chicken. And, and I had a nice fruity Ciroc, California. Mm-hmm. It, it would work. That, it would work to me. Yeah, that's for me, that's more of a white wine kind of a meal. This might play up that feeling of, I would say, almost that metallic again, going back to the, the fish, you know, the, the heavy red wine with a lighter meat dish might just be very, I don't know, unbalanced. And that really is kind of what we're coming back to. The, the theme that keeps being touched on here is is balance. You know, you don't want too much of this or too much of that because then they get kind of out of kilter. So the next uh, one they talked about was Burgundy with lasagna. So Pinot Noir with lasagna. And they talked about this being like a real acid bomb, that there's too much richness in the cheese, but then acidity in the sauce. And then you put it with Burgundy, which is a very high acid red because it's cooler climate Pinot Noir. So there's just naturally higher levels of acidity there. But then I was thinking, well, Italian reds and lasagna go great together. And those are high acid as well. I think more of this comes down to quantity and having a little bit of it is going to be delicious. But if you just do overdo it and have lots of lasagna and lots of wine, then it's just going to be heavy and give you heartburn. 
I, I totally agree with that. I don't think as much, this saying too much acid, but like you said, Chianti is very acidic. Maybe it's because of the weight of, of a Burgundy or Pinot Noir is a little lighter than a Chianti. Mm-hmm. So maybe just the lasagna is going to overpower yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. And I think that's where the, the cheesy element of the lasagna comes into. I think that might be too weighty for the Burgundy. The next that was mentioned was with a very heavy Chardonnay and spicy food. This goes really against my own philosophy of what you pair with spicy food. I tend to go with lighter whites that have a little bit of sweetness to them so that the sugar in the wine balances out the heat in the spicy food. And I've had heavier, weightier whites like Viognier, like some dry Chenin Blancs that really don't go well with spicy food because they are too heavy. And I think a big part of why they mentioned this type of Chardonnay that wouldn't go well is the alcohol content. And you have to remember that higher alcohol wines are going to taste hotter if you have them with spicy food. So you're thinking when they're saying heavy Chardonnay, it's the alcohol, not an oaky Chardonnay. I think I think oaky as well. But I think when you get into those warmer climate Chardonnays from California, that most of them are produced in an oakier style, you also have that extra percentage or two of alcohol. So you're looking at 13, 14, maybe 15% levels of alcohol in those wines. And I think that's just way too high to go with, with something with spicy. So there's some Chardonnay that can be more, say, of a vegetal quality. So if you had like a, say, a spicy sausage with peppers or onions hmm. would that work maybe and then pair it with this type type of chardonnay or pair it with a, More a like lighter a green, like, like a, a vegetal or herbal style like an unoak Char- chardonnay yeah. yeah like a new zealand unoak chardonnay yes. i think would probably cool a climate great. maybe mm-hmm. so i'm spicy with the oak i definitely think yeah clashes yeah. really bad so no oaky wines with spicy food people don't just don't even go there and our our last one this is one of those classic things that is hard to pair with wine. All of us wine people talk about it. Talking about certain green vegetables that are really difficult to pair with wine. And the one that gets mentioned the most is probably artichokes. But there are others as well. So things from the cabbage family like Brussels sprouts and broccoli and cauliflower can be a little bit more difficult to pair with wine. But also things like green beans or some other things that have a real vegetal quality to them. Kale, spinach, things like that. And I find that those things are difficult to pair again with those heavier reds because the tannins just get them all out of all, all out of balance and all out of kilter. Do you make artichokes, Kim? Um, I oh. make artichoke dip. I'm not really a big fan of artichokes. I like them in things and I like them as part of like an antipasto platter, but I don't tend to do an awful lot of cooking of artichokes. So what's the typical way people serve it? Don't they fill it with some sort of meat? I'm trying to recall. So, I'm yeah, not so a big fan of it. You but. can take the whole artichoke and you can scoop out the heart and then you can fill it with like breadcrumbs or like meatball mixture. That's one way of doing it. People will fry the artichoke hearts, which are really good. So There's, if you had that version where where stuffed with breadcrumb or meat, wouldn't Merlot work? That would be a little it bit would better. Work? Yeah, but not like like a real traditional way that people in my family will eat artichokes is you'll take the, the whole artichoke and you take the leaves off. Well, yeah, actually, steam the whole artichoke and so that the whole thing gets cooked all the way through and then you peel off the leaves and then you just sort of like suck off the meat from the leaves. So sometimes you like dip it in a little bit of a sauce but it's mostly what you're getting is the vegetable and you're getting like that real green veggie flavor and that in its purest form 
is what doesn't go well with wine. See, I would pair that with a Merlot from like a, a Chile region because typically it has that eucalyptus or that, you know, you know that style of mm-hmm. red where... It's more it's vegetal. Herbal. Yeah. yeah, it's more herbal, yeah. vegetal. And that would work. So there's a, a lot of these pairings that were in this article. I feel a lot of them do work. They maybe may we sound should, strange. Maybe we should try the terrible pairings and see how they go. I still, the tuna fish thing, I, <laughs> I'm a big tuna fan. I think if you, you know, grill the uh, roll or there's a lot you could do to make it work. But I guess if that's all you have is these wines and, and you have that food, you have to go with what you have, right? Any other things that you thought were... I think they mentioned one thing about lemon tot or another dessert with uh-huh. with a white, which I think they mentioned Viognier. I feel that was also probably a good pairing because of the fruit profile with the lemon. Yeah, I still just don't have very much or... luck with desserts and table wines. Not doing it for me. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about our show or listen to past episodes, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. You can also find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you.